We're almost there. It's nice to see all of you. Thanks for coming back. Um, just for your planning, we'll go a couple more weeks, and then after that, your life should be absolutely perfect. So, you know, life is good. All right, it's 8.30. Let's have a run at it. Uh, just this very short prayer. Now, this comes in a range of very short prayers. Uh, I read a little bit by Henry Nouwen today about the use of a single word or a couple of words to take you into a place where calm prevails. And uh, I came across this one earlier in the week, so just as a prayer. And it sounds odd not to end it with amen, but from Augustine, amen, alleluia. Now, this is very interesting to me because last week I tried to convince you that the Lord's Prayer is all about closing the gap between heaven and earth. So pray the Lord's Prayer a lot. I mean, pray it every day. Pray it 10 times a day. Um, Pray it as you think about those folks you love. Think about your friends and your church and your world. But what wants to happen is that... uh, on earth as it is in heaven. That's what wants to happen. And so the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit send the kingdom of God in the flesh of Jesus. And then we're strengthened from table and altar uh, with forgiveness and protection. And someday, uh, the glory that came down in the manger will take us back to the holiness of God. And sometime you can read this. It must have been, I didn't look at it in the Latin, but I'm sure it must have been fun for Augustine to write because there's, there's even in English, the play is on word. But even just this, our whole activity in heaven will consist of amen and alleluia. Now, part of this, he says, you probably think this will be boring, but this will be the greatest experience that you could ever have. Amen and alleluia with an inexpressibly different feeling of love. And then if you take something home for your own prayers, amen means it's true. And alleluia means praise God. So in your own prayers, you can use this as amen, alleluia, or it's true, praise God. It's all true. It's true from the start to the finish. It's true from the incarnation to the resurrection and the ascension. It's true, praise God. It's all true. You have have this great bit from Augustine who's trying to close the gap between uh, heaven and earth. And, uh, you know, if you'd like, you can can have a go at this with amen and alleluia. And just simply, you know, say it again and again. Augustine speaks of this, if you go up just a little bit, John, This is his description of heaven. Amen. With a kind of never satisfied satisfaction. And you ask yourself, you know, what is that exactly? It's this satisfaction that never ends and always intensifies. So while it's difficult to speak about days in heaven um, and time, since those things no longer exist, things just get better and better. Uh, you have this notable sense of inexpressible love that increases and gets better and better. Um, All the citizens of that city, you see, will be urging each other to equal heights of praise, and they'll be saying, Alleluia, because they'll be saying, Amen. 
it's this constant rejoicing that that all is well. All right, John, if you can uh, shoot me to point number one, that would be fantastic. Um, you all do have this. If you can look at it in a different way, that would be helpful. But you know where we've been. Uh, there's this trouble now with anxiety and worry and fear and even panic. Uh, and people are exhausted and a little crispy around the edges. And uh, I notice this in myself and also in other people. Patience is thin sometimes and uh, people are having a hard time getting back to what their life was like 18 months ago. Uh, but that's not unique to us. I, I came across a sermon by C.S. Lewis that he preached shortly after Germany had invaded Poland. There was a big discussion about whether people could stay in the university or if everybody had to go to war. So he preached a sermon called Learning in Wartime. And I found that it was uh, quite apropos or described our situation fairly well. He basically says, hey, there's no good time to get your work done. So wherever you end up, keep going. It's just that in times of war, pandemic, things seem a bit more difficult. But he then says, you know, there's three things that are going to make it hard on us. And I was particularly interested in the first one, which was excitement. He said, you know, there's going to be all kinds of reporting here. It'll be very distracting for us. And you'll find that people are even paralyzed by it. Um, And of course, that's happened in spades. Uh, especially with the rise of 24-hour news cycle and news as entertainment and um, reporting as uh, partisan and the difficulty we have in sorting things out. But he says, you know, uh, if you give yourself to that, you'll, you'll be tortured. But if you can think about examples, stories, as we've talked about, of courageous folks who did wonderful things in tough circumstances, you'll be comforted and be able to follow them uh, while you remember that the future belongs to the Lord and not to you. So the first thing is just sort of calm down, show a little bit of self-control. The next one, he said, um, one of the enemies that will appear is frustration. And certainly this has happened over the last year and a half where many of us have felt like we just can't get our work done. Our rhythms have changed. Our punch lists are different. Our efficiency is down. Our uh, exhaustion is up. But he gives sort of a very Lutheran answer where he says, you know, just uh, do the work that's in front of you. And doing that work, according to whatever your station in life is, if you're a mother, um, care for your child. If you're a teacher, then teach. If you work at the grocery store, put out the fresh fruit because work in some way will cure that worry. So just the faith to kind of carry on that the Lord has put you in the right place. And then finally he says, you know, in a pandemic or in war, he uses, but it's for you too, in a pandemic. And I've talked to some of you about this, you know, it reminds us that we're all die. And that can be a paralyzing question. We're just pestering, you know, this question he said, you know, people ask again and again, what if the war takes me? And people have said too, you know, what if the virus takes me? You know, the last story I read before I came to you was, you know, another strain found that, you know, in Texas, it doesn't seem to respond very well to um, the antibodies that, that have been being used in the past. Now what? Great nervousness, right? 
But Lewis says, you know, war or a pandemic, the kind of worry that comes to us, it makes death real, but it doesn't make it more likely that we'll die today. We're mortal, but you should number your days and just carry on. And he calls that cure sobriety, not in the sense of, you know, not drinking, but in the sense of take yourself, take, take your life seriously, right? And then this quote from Kierkegaard, that death is a good dance partner because it keeps us light on our feet and focused on beautiful, wonderful things. So if you're a dancer, maybe that makes uh, a bit of sense to you. Now, what's interesting is that, well, among the things that are interesting is that in reading Lewis, we realize that we're not alone. All this stuff is familiar to us, that the troubles are the same, anxiety and worry and fear and dread and even panic, and the cures are the same. And they largely revolve around um, courage and discipline and order. Way back when I started thinking about this, I was swamped by the number of manifestations of fear and anxiety. And initially I thought I'd be able to catalog those and, and sort of pick them off one by one. But I learned that they manifest themselves in so many different ways. And so that wasn't going to be a way that we would be able to get any sort of resolution. Uh, it seemed to me a better way to proceed was to recognize that our fears and our worries and anxieties and even our panic uh, can be cured in largely the same way. I just for a moment, I had a, I just kind of a normal doctor's appointment this week and one of the things that I always do is quiz my doctors about how they're doing, because I presume that nobody ever does that. And uh, one of the doctors I was speaking with, who's a fairly strong person, said, um, over the course of the last year, I woke in the middle of the night with panic attacks, which is very interesting for me to hear that from a doctor who normally are very analytical and firm. And then the next line was, it's made me much more empathetic. I understand what people have been going through much better than I did before. It's really a remarkable piece of self-awareness. And um, I think many of us have had that as well. So, you know, I think about this, when I think about these things, your worry and mine, you know, our anxiety and our troubles, our dread and even our panic is going to appear in many different forms. That's the way demons work. And nevertheless, uh, the cure is sort of the same. Yes, it needs to be bumped and nudged and artfully applied, but the cures are fairly rhythmic, fairly stable. You know, what have been the cures we've talked about? Tell a good story. Close the gap between God and you. Understand that holiness manifests itself in love. Touch that love and rejoice in it. And so, um, you know, it was interesting for me to see Lewis say the same thing. And in a moment, I want to introduce you to a couple of 
Desert Fathers, one Desert Father in particular, but I want you to sort of recognize that um, this has been a common thing from forever in the desert, especially the desert mothers and fathers who are very interested about how to proceed through life. Paid attention to that. So, John, I'm kind of, yeah, you're doing a great job, John. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, the cure is embracing divine love. So uh, just a quick then review. This is stuff that you know, but, you know, we got to say it every time. Sin, as Luther reminds us, focuses in. And when I focus in on myself, when I look into my own rotten, dark heart, when I focus on myself, when I tell a story about myself, when I worry about my deficiencies, when I'm constantly reminded about my sins, when I can't look up at you and I certainly can't look up at God, when sin curves in on itself, I remember that I wobble and then I worry. And then I see the whole story of the world. I see the whole world through anxiety, through, through worry. I see the world through my own eyes. That's a sinful way to proceed. Um, it's like driver's ed, right? I don't know if you remember this lesson in driver's ed, but you know, they would say to you, like, you know, you know, don't hit that, don't hit that phone pole, but don't look at it. If you look at the phone pole, you'll hit it for sure. I mean, you hit what you're aiming at. So, you know, don't um the car goes where you look. It's best if you look down your lane and not be distracted by things, especially if something goes wrong. You know, if it's snowy or you're sliding or braking. You look toward where you want to go. Okay. Well, number six, you know, focus out on Christ. And when we do that and take the focus off our own hearts and put it on the heart of Christ, that open heart that bleeds for you, right? You've seen this, uh, the merciful heart of Christ. Um, Then we begin to see the world the way Christ sees it and says, uh, the way Christ sees it and the way he talks about it. And then especially uh, the holiness that he brings bestows hope for us. We've talked a little bit about how holiness has more gravitas. It's heavier, it's weightier. And so if you want to lose evil, you know, touch holy things. Holiness actually displaces evil. It actually moves it out of the way. They can't coexist. It chases it away. It pushes it away. It's too heavy for evil to bear. And evil is just um, one, I'm sorry, worry is just one form of the evil that attacks us. So at the end of seven, their hope welcomes the future and hopelessness dreads the future. Now, how do we go forward? This is point number eight. Pastor Nelson has a friend who's an exorcist, which is always good for a conversation. And, uh, What's very interesting, and this happens to us too, people will come to us and say, you know, we think there's something crazy going on at our house with one of the persons we know. And, uh, or this, could this be the explanation of what's happening in our lives? What's so interesting is that any exorcist will simply say, he'll start by saying, so what are you doing? And what are you not doing? And then he'll say, keep doing the the holy things. And stop doing the evil things. You should go to confession with the evil things. And then he'll say, you should go to the liturgy and take the Holy Supper. And you should say your prayers every day. And this particular guy says, you know, you do that for the next month. So 30 days, take an inventory every day of what you're doing and what you're not doing, what's good and what's evil. 
go to church every Sunday for the next month and say your prayers every day. And then he says, unless you do that, we're done. Because uh, so many of our worries and anxieties and fears and dread and panic are very simply explained by touching evil. It's very rare to have uh, it's very rare to have some extraordinary um, evil explanation for things. You know, most of our lives, most of our troubles are simply because we touch even sort of minor evils or basic evils or we touch them a lot. Well, in any case, um, the early church fathers and mothers knew this. And this is point number 10. Um, they would talk about guarding the heart. Now, it's important here that I want to say to you that this is not a technique, right? This is not, um, this is not uh, given to you, or they don't deliver it in the way that, hey, if you can just figure this out, then everything's going to be. It's not sort of manipulation the way you often hear in televangelists or people who want to take a lot of money from you. Uh, no, this is actually a way of life. So just sort of look at this at number 11. Um, this comes, the list I'm giving you here is from uh, Avagrius, who died about 400 AD. But he said, you know, there's eight kinds of spiritual sickness. Now you know that eight is a holy number. And Jesus rose on the eighth day. We just heard that in John's gospel. And you're baptized on the eighth day, the very last line of Augustine's, or last page of Augustine's city of God. Someday we'll all be gathered up in the, you know, in the eight, uh, on the eighth day and all go to heaven together. Well, um, so you're not surprised by the number eight, but if you just take a look at these things where he says, you know, here's how people generally go wrong. Greed of any sort. So that's to love things more than God. A pathological relationship to sex. So um, sex is very clearly defined in the scriptures, a holy, wonderful thing that's given as a gift within marriage. A pathological relationship to money. So this is almost like uh, greed, but, you know, money above all things. You sort of Bernie Madoff, everybody that you know. Now, this is interesting. Sadness, right? Melancholy. That's a bad spirit. It tells a bad story. Or aggressiveness, kind of the other side of that, where... Um, always irritated and always exercising power. I've had a couple of very interesting discussions this week about how power is the easy way out. And we live in a world now, and it's in our nation and then also around the world, where everybody seems to want to exert their will on everybody else. And, you know, the world is trying to figure out whether it's a one world or kind of a collection of nations. The United States is trying to figure out whether we're, you know, one nation or a lot of tribes who have happened to collide in the same space. Uh, it's just a very interesting time. And aggression or aggressiveness is one of the ways that uh, people often engage each other. Next is acedia, which you probably would know of as, as, the, as the, the sin of sloth, but it's this you're listless, you're not interested in anything, you can't get off the couch, you're not productive. And then uh, the last two, very similar, vanity, where um, 
you're given only to external things, right? Not beauty in its depth, but superficial beauty, for example. And then, of course, the really big sin of pride, where I'm always right and you're always wrong. And by the way, if you have any curiosity about that, I can straighten you out. So all of these have a single source, which is to be turned in on myself, to love myself more than anything else. And the interesting thing is that all of these things flourish in our imagination. Your imagination can be this wonderful thing where, you know, memory transports us back to wonderful things and imagination transports us forward to wonderful things. That's what Augustine was doing in that initial prayer. Imagine when we're all together and in heaven and all our time is spent uh, in amen and alleluia. It's true, praise God. And it gets better and better and better with every moment. And we feel love in the way we've never felt it before. That's a glorious imagination. But now, for in a moment, just, just for a moment, think of somebody who's wronged you. Okay, pick somebody out. Somebody who's wronged you that you haven't seen for a while. And now think about how you think about them. And now really honestly try to think about what really happened between you. And you will inevitably find that your imagination about what happened is a hundred or a thousand times worse than what actually happened. Right? So we, um, we, we make the world, we tell a bad story, make the world far worse than it needs to be. In fact, we're actually out of touch with reality. So what do you do? You know, what can we do? Good job, John, right at point number 12. Good job. So what's very interesting is you have the very same advice from St. John Damascene, um, you know, 400 AD-ish, that I kept a check, uh, but also Luther. So listen, to they say the same thing in different ways. Whether thoughts trouble us or not is something beyond our doing. So if you're like me or like any other human being, you think ill of someone or you think that you've been wounded or um, you're tempted to sin. Uh, that's not always of our doing, although, you know, you good Lutherans, the devil, the world and our flesh. But, you know, just take this for face value. Thoughts trouble us and that's not uh, whether thoughts trouble us or not is something beyond our doing. So basically we get attacked. But whether they dwell within us or not, whether they stir up passions or not, that is something which is within our power. So temptations come to us. They come to all of us. And that's not sinful. You remember Hebrew says about Jesus, he was tempted in every way as we were, but he did not sin. Temptations themselves are not sinful. It's what you do with them. And as a Christian, baptized, body-blooded, it is within your power and mine to reject those things. Luther says it in a, in a different way. You can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can't stop them from building a nest in your hair, right? So, you know, back to a question that keeps reappearing. 
when we're tempted, do we embrace the sin or flee it? Do we touch evil or uh, run away from it? Uh, Lead us not into temptation, stay away, but deliver us from the evil one, run away. Stay away, run away. Is that our response to evil? Now, we all struggle with this, and, you know, we wouldn't have to work hard to find a dozen times today where we've uh, touched the wrong thing. But the practical question is, how can we take control of our attention again? And how can we make that our habit, right? Guarding your heart has to do with sifting your thoughts, Number 13, guarding your heart, vigilance, nepsis. Guarding your heart is tending your heart. Guarding your heart is sifting your thoughts. They speak of you as being a gatekeeper to your heart. So you can just, this is a very powerful image, right? There are all these ideas. There are all these influences. There are all these temptations. There are people who appear at the door of your heart And they'd like to visit. We even have, you know, we speak about this in English. We entertain thoughts, right? We say to them, hey, come in, sit down, have a martini. Let's talk it over. Put your feet up, right? Should you do that or not? The Desert Fathers and Mothers said, you should be extraordinarily careful with that. And you can see that they take the notion, this nepho, or I'm sorry, nepho, uh, is is the word that then comes in uh, to our language is vigilance. And this is how it works right there at the bottom of the page that John has put up. Tending the heart means observing our thoughts, discerning if they're good or evil. So this is very much like the gate of a city, right? Or trying to figure out if the person who presents himself is friend or foe. So you have a good look at it. You discern whether or not it's good or evil and of course for that you need to be well trained in what is good and what is evil so you got to remember the ten commandments and then you embrace the good come in sit down live with me be part of my life and flee the evil or even chase it away and if you do that if i do that repeatedly that is the path to peace and calm and rest, even as so happened so often in the early church, if you end up being skinned alive or burned at the stake or, you know, being shot with arrows or having all your teeth pulled out. I think you might have seen, there was a Coptic man, perhaps you saw this news story, a Coptic man this week who built, he was a very uh, successful businessman who built a new church in his village and he was um, abducted a few months ago and uh, tortured. Among the things they did to try to get him to camp was to break all his teeth out. Uh, And you can imagine the pain of that. And then uh, he was kind of an ISIS affiliate, shot him in the back of the head this week. And as always, they filmed it. And then as always for the cops, they said, that's our man. He's a saint. He died doing exactly what Jesus wanted from him. He refused evil and touched good to the very last moment and died, you know, 
very peacefully as the video goes. I tend not to watch these anymore. Um, so many of these things are so difficult. But he does take um, this advice from Avagrius. Take care of yourself, be the gatekeeper to your heart, and don't let anything enter without questioning it. This is really a very simple thing, right? Thoughts occur to us, people present themselves, ideas come, news is reported, excitement is everywhere, frustration builds, and what? You spend your day like a man at a gate, letting some people in and keeping some people out letting some ideas in and some ideas out, letting good stories in and rejoicing in those good stories and keeping bad stories out. Tell yourself a good story. Keep holy things near. Touch good. Reject evil. And 14, this is um, easy in one sense, but it's very difficult in another because... This is not the world that we live in now. We, we are uh, very much a minority. And um, in the sense of uh, um, the morality or the, the good that we, what we understand is good. I don't say that in any way to, you know, to, to sort of gain sympathy or even regretfully. One of the good things that will happen to Christians over the next decades will be that it will be very easy to tell the difference between us and others. When they're banging that poor man's teeth out and shooting him in the back of the head, you know who is who, right? Same for in the early church, when people, you know, uh, mobs would surround Christians and, and destroy them. Um, you knew who was who. So the other thing to remember is that... Uh, this life is very short and um, eternity is very long and keeping the gate here opens the gate to amen and hallelujah. The unsatisfied, satisfying love that sort of wraps us up. Now, uh, you know, we got off to a little bit of a rough start there. I'm sorry, but I will leave you with uh, Romans 12. It's all here, one chapter of scripture. So, you know, you can work back from Lewis to Luther to uh, Evagrius to St. Paul, right? This is such a beautiful chapter of scripture. Just the highlighted parts. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, right? See, gatekeeping, sorting, sifting, discerning. Don't be conformed. Don't be bent into the image of this world. You know, don't be like everybody else. Don't be like evil. Don't be like Satan. Don't be like the world. Don't be conformed to this, but be transformed. Um, gosh, I didn't check that, but I'm guessing that's going to be the word for transfiguration. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You take care of your mind. You're a gatekeeper. You sort things. Testing that you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is beautiful, right? It's not that much to remember. It's quite a lot to practice because you end up 
in a happy way, not a pietistic way, not a fearful way, not a prudish way, not a puritanical way, but in a loving way, evaluating everything that comes to you as, is this holy or not? Is this the way of Jesus or not? Is this the heart of Jesus? Is this merciful or not? Is this by power or is this by love? Right? Verse 9. Everything you need to know about being a Christian in one verse. Love, abhor evil, hold fast to good. Let love be gen. That's the Christian life in one verse of scripture. The entire Christian life is there. Love what's genuine. Let love be genuine. Love genuine things. Gatekeep, sift, discern. Right? Use love as the lodestone, as the template. Let love be genuine. Abhor, right? Flee, you know, be repulsed by, um, you know, run the other way from whatever is evil and cling, hold on to, hold fast, talk about, rejoice and kiss, love, eat, drink, splash, whatever is good. Um, Just a glorious way to move through life. And then the next line, I'm sorry, if you just go to the next page, John. There you go, right at the top, just the very first line. Never be wise in your own sight. That's pride. That's looking inside yourself instead of looking outside to Christ. That's sin rather than holiness, right? And the last line, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good, right? Tell a good story, a holy story. Touch a good thing word and sacrament, Um, act in love, you know, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Don't be persuaded by, overcome by, overrun by, associated with evil. That'll be the end of you, Psalm 1, we did that. Now, um, last thing. Uh, and I just give you this because it was popular early with the Desert Fathers and then also with, you know, your Orthodox friends. But this is the prayer that the pastors and lay assistants say every time before we go to the altar. This is the prayer we say, you know, just before we follow the crucifix. And it comes in a couple of different forms. This is a little longer one, um, as short as that is. But, you know, we could actually close with this prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So I recall reading that uh, the first step in that prayer uh, is to say it 10,000 times a day. And then once you get that, then we'll move on, okay? But this beautiful prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So uh, two for one tonight. Uh, Amen, alleluia. But this other one, this has a long history in the church. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have, have a go with that too. And what you'll find then is, is those prayers make you a gatekeeper, become gatekeepers, accompany you as you discern. Uh, and the more you pray those prayers, the easier it will be for you to sift and sort the troubles that will come to you in this life. Okay, you were very patient. Sorry about the technical goofs and running.
you know, over a little bit. Uh, we're still learning to, we'll try to figure out what happened there. Maybe I just did something out of order. So, but I thanks John for rescuing me and Mary for letting me know. Um, I thought I was all good. So there you go. All right. God bless you all. I'll, uh, I'll see you when I see you. John, you closed down. That's good. And if anybody needs anything, you can hang around and shout at me. So, but otherwise, um, thank you very, very much. See you, John. You thank you very much. Yeah. Who's, who's talking to me? This is uh, Brian. Brian? Yeah. What's yep. cooking? Um, I was thinking. So, um, hi. <laughs> so, hey, good to um, see you. Yeah, definitely. Good to see you too. But um, so a little bit like about halfway through your um, this uh, Bible study that we were working through, um, you said something about how like temptations are like not necessarily sin. It's what we do with them, which is sin. And yeah. I feel like I've heard in the past that like, yeah, it's been explained to me that way, but I feel like other people explain it as like the um our temptations and the things that we think about in our head is like kind of an example, an expression of our sinful nature. So they kind of are sin in a way. Like we do say like, you know, thoughts, words, and deeds when we confess our sins, you know? Well done. So um, yeah, you know, since this is only half an hour, everything gets a little little truncated, but that's an extraordinarily good question. So if we said, um, you know, where do temptations come from? you know, the, the, you know, Luther would say the devil, the world and our flesh, which pretty much covers the waterfront, right? So um, the devil and the world are external and they come at me right from outside. So I was kind of working with that because that was the way that the desert, desert fathers, the mother talk about it. But of course you're right, because from my own heart also come temptations, right? In fact, I don't know if you do this, but I often try to sort out or I muse about is that me or can I blame that one on the devil right so and it is kind of interesting especially when you start to think about how um, uh, demons would tempt you for example and whether words are necessary and how thoughts work and what appears in your mind and right so that's kind of advanced level stuff here but you're exactly right Uh, their reference was more or less you know the image they were trying to use as this gatekeeper is you know, people come from outside the wall trying to get in as opposed to inside. But what you're saying is, of course, true. And, you know, probably another half hour of talking about what lies in my evil heart. So anyway, good job. Yeah. And it can be explained both ways. And, you know, one of the things you'll, as you talk theology with people, uh, you know, people get, uh, well, I would just say to you get good definitions and then, but, you know, don't cling too tightly. Uh, things get revised and, they sharpen up and get better. So, and you're clearly doing that. So that was, that was very, very nicely done. And you can, but here's the thing then you need to do the gatekeeping against yourself, right? You have to discern. I really, really want this. Is that really, really good? And it's me. I really, really want it. Right. I don't need any encouragement from the devil or the world. I really, really want this. Is that a good thing for me to have? Right. So and that comes self, self-examination and confession and absolution. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just kind of two ways to look at the same thing because like we definitely can't say that like the things within our mind are necessarily sin because like like you said also like Christ was tempted and he is sinless so it, 
you know, being tempted can't necessarily be sin, so. Yeah, his absence of original sin probably makes um, Luther take, you know, disconnects one of the, uh, one of the Lutheran possibilities, right? So, for Jesus, yeah. all temptation is from outside, not inside, but for oh, you, true. For you, right? So, from outside, yeah. because he has a pure heart, mm-hmm. he only gets two of the three, and, you know, they come from, uh, you know, from outside, but for you and for me, um, there's a third option, right? The yeah, trouble, definitely. Right? Yeah. So that's a fabulous uh, question and good job thinking it through. That's exactly how it should be. But now you have another thing to worry about, unfortunately. So good luck. Pastor, I had a question for you from last week. Um, Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Mm -hmm. Uh, If God is not, you know, leading us into temptation, you know, how how does that, what's kind of a better, is is that the best phrasing of that? Or is there a better way to say that? Yeah, it's a complex thought, isn't it? Uh, I think part of it is, is that we think, well, one of the ways that God polishes us up is to allow us to be challenged, right? It's the simplest thing about Job, but there's several other much less dramatic possibilities. Um, you know, you might think of it as don't let us be overcome by temptation or not more than I can handle or, uh, this is a fearsome thing and it goes, it could go very badly, you know, so protect me from what could overrun me. It's a recognition of my own weakness and dependence on Christ. And yet everything that the Lord gives me or does to me is for my ben- for my benefit, right? So there's, you're right, there's a, there's a lot of things that need to be held together in that one sentence. You remember Luther, how Luther's explanation, the small catechism, God indeed tempts no one, but we pray in this petition, that, right? God, in, this very direct, you know, just what you said. But uh, we do live in a world filled with temptation. And we want to align ourselves with the good that God would do us, wherever that happens to happen. So, yeah, it's good. good. That's good. I love you. All right. Thanks. All right. Sleep well, all of you. Um, Give, give it a, you know, give your new prayers a try and let's see what happens.